we turn now to Mark's gospel in what really is a random place, it feels like, for the story we're about to read. At least it feels to be just placed here randomly. You'll talk about that in a minute. Jesus has just sent his disciples out on their mission, the mission of the twelve as it's often called. He sends them out for the first time and they haven't quite come back yet. And Mark writes this, King Herod heard of it for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in Jesus. But others said, it's Elijah, and others said, it's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother's, brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him. That's not good. And wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and his officers and the leaders of Galilee. And when his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and he said, To the girl, ask me whatever you wish, I'll give it to you. And he solemnly swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? Her mother replied, the head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was Deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oath and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. So immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. When the girl gave it to her mother, then the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. Loving God, let the story speak to us. Let it challenge us a little bit in the truths that it would share. May it actually give us hope. In Christ we pray. Amen. So the famous story of the beheading of John the Baptist. Remember it? Maybe you remember parts of it and not all of it. Not, you may not remember all the ins and outs of all that's going on. I mean, it's a jam-packed little story. Maybe you do. I mean, maybe you've heard it a thousand times. Or maybe you've actually never heard it at all before. Whatever is the case, you have to admit 
that this story has everything a great story should have. I mean, it's just got it all. Here we have a prophet or a preacher who is unwilling, refuses to say anything other than what he feels is right, a king who has a wife who's ready to take vengeance out on this guy, and yet he's afraid he's caught between the vengeance of his wife and his own fear of losing his political power if he does something bad to John, and then the daughter who's this puppet throughout the whole thing. I mean, it's just horrible. Isn't it great? (laughs) It's got betrayal and manipulation. It also has brutality and murder, all the things that make for a story that you don't want to put down. And yet, as I mentioned before, that's not really the thing that intrigues me the most about it. What actually intrigues me the most about this story is not all the juicy little details, amazing as they are and captivating as they are, but in fact, where Mark places it in relation to the rest of his gospel. I mean, why here? Mark waits, I mean, Matthew waits until much later in his own gospel. Luke and John, they don't even mention it at all. Why does he tell it? Why does he tell it here? Right after Jesus sends the disciples on their mission, the mission of the twelve, before they come back, Mark tucks this seemingly random out of place story right in the middle of it. Why? Well, maybe he knows that we are sitting there on the edge of our seats waiting to know what John the, happened to John the Baptist. Now, I know you're not doing that because we haven't started at the beginning of the gospel. But if you were to start at the beginning of the gospel, you would know that we start off with John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, and then Jesus' ministry comes in and, and starts to gain fame, and he calls his disciples, and we begin to focus on Jesus, right? And he's tell, we go through chapter after chapter of Jesus telling the crowds parables and, and doing, performing healings and teaching the disciples, and it's all, all building up, and, and we're getting excited about the whole thing, and, and maybe and we want to know what happened to John the Baptist, because right after Mark tells us about John the Baptist's preaching, he says this, he says, And after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news. He hints right at the very beginning of John's arrest, but then leaves it, never says another word about it. And maybe in that day you knew some about what happened to John the Baptist, but what if you weren't in the know? And even then, maybe you didn't know all the details, and and so you hear this, John after... John was arrested, Jesus comes, but all of a sudden you're sitting there wondering, what happened to John? Why did he become get arrested? Who arrested him? What did he do? And you have to sit there for five whole chapters waiting to find out until you finally do. So maybe Mark just can't wait to let us in on what he knows. Maybe he can't wait himself. I mean, after all, it is a juicy story. And as much as we like to say, well, we don't need to know about that, there deep down we, we really want to know all the 
dirty little details. I mean, who wouldn't want to know about what goes on in the back rooms of a royal family? Who wouldn't want to hear a story about a ruler who gets duped by his own wife to do the very thing that he didn't want to do in the first place? Who doesn't want to hear a story like that? Maybe Mark just finally couldn't wait any longer and tells us right here. And I think that's certainly part of it. All good storytellers know how to leave their people hanging until just the right moment. So that's got to be part of it. But there's another reason that is, in fact, I think, a more important reason. And it involves two truths. The first truth has to do with the harsh reality of the world we live in. That by placing this story right here, Mark is reminding us of the harsh reality of the world. If that's what he's doing, what better place to do it than right after Jesus sends his disciples out into the world? Sends the disciples out into the world, and then he reminds us of the harsh reality of the world in which they just went out into, the same world we go out into. If again you read from the beginning of the gospel all along as I've said this ministry is building right and the disciples are learning and you can sense this palpable growing energy something about it and you're getting excited and perhaps they're going to get to go out and do what Jesus does. Finally they'll get to go and do what Jesus has been doing all this time and you wait and wait and finally in chapter 6 it actually happens. He sends them out into the world Go and do what I've been doing. Go and proclaim. Go and heal and and come back and make your report. And so you're like, finally, exciting, great. They're going to get to go and change the world. And yet Mark puts the story in to say, but hang on one second. Let me remind you of just what kind of world it really is. It's a world filled with Fear and manipulation and backstabbing and division, controversy and brutality, death. That's the world, the first truth. There's another truth, another reason that Mark places this story right here. Much more than simply explaining something that has already happened, Mark is pointing ahead to something that is about to happen. Much more than giving us and reminding us of that first truth of the harshness of our world, Mark is pointing us ahead to a second truth. And you can't see it yet because you haven't gotten to the end of the gospel. You have to finish out the whole of the gospel in order to see it. But let's just give you the Cliff Notes version to help you out. Years ago, a man by the name of Um, Norman Perrin has been credited with writing this thought down for the first time. Certainly wasn't the first time it was realized. He noticed a distinct similarity between the story in Mark, in Mark alone, 
the similarity between the death of John with Herod and the death of Jesus with Pontius Pilate. That those two encounters follow the exact same pattern and hold the exact same characteristics. In other words, Herod is, impre- or Herod imp- is impressed with John in the same way that Pilate is impressed with Jesus. Herod wants to spare John's life. Pilate wants to spare Jesus' life. If you remember, he comes before the crowd. Let me give you another option. What's this man done? Herod bows to the will of his family in much the same way Pilate bows to the will of the people. They both, in effect, become unwilling participants in a story that is beyond their control. What Perrin says is that Mark is pointing us to the end of the gospel by connecting John's death with Jesus' death. In much the same way as Luke connects John's birth with Jesus' birth, Mark is doing the same with the end of their life. In other words, Mark is telling us the gruesome details of John's tragic death, revealing to us alongside the harsh reality of our world, by and then connecting it to Jesus' death. He is, in fact, infusing it with an element of grace pointing us to the redemptive work of God that is to come in this gospel. By telling us about the tragic death of John the Baptist, Mark, by connecting it with Christ, is pointing us to the redemptive death of the cross that we find on the cross. By sharing with us this first truth of the harshness of our world, Mark is also pointing us to the second truth of God's amazing grace, God's tenacious efforts to redeem us from the world in which we live and are part of. Yes, there are many reasons I think Mark puts it right here as opposed to other places. Certainly he is a good good storyteller letting us in finally on what happens to John the Baptist. Certainly he is revealing to us the first truth, the truth of the harsh world in which we live, a brutal world in which we find Herods around every corner. But more than that, he's, he's pointing us to a second truth pointing us to the grace of God in Jesus Christ by pointing us to the cross. Short story writer Flannery O'Connor once said that there is a moment in every story where it feels as if grace is waiting to be accepted or rejected whether the reader recognizes it or not. Now, I think that's what's going on here in the beginning part, in the middle of of Mark, especially with this story in particular. 
After all, when you read it, I mean, you get to this point and you're excited about the disciples going out and doing this mission in the world, making a difference, and then Mark drops this bomb of a story, this captivating story with a lot of juice in it that we can't put down, and yet it makes our hearts sink because it's so horrible, so brutal, like the world we live in, and we look at that story and we may even say to ourselves, where's the grace? I, I can't see the grace. Because at this point, we haven't read the rest of it yet. But you get to the end of the gospel and you get to that point where Jesus comes to Pontius Pilate and you start to say to yourself, I feel like this has happened before. Where did this happen before? It's Mark's way of showing us that grace was there all along. Whether we could see it or not. God's grace running right through the middle of it. You look out at our world today, it's a constant theme, right? You look out at that world and all this manipulation and backstabbing and Division, fear, it feels as if there's a Herod around every corner. Brutal, brutal world sometimes. You look at it and you, where's the grace? I can't see the grace. But I know what Mark would say. Mark would say the grace is there. You may not be able to see it right now. Your life may be in the pit. This world may look like it's in the pit. You might not be able to see it, but it's there. I'm telling you it's there. You have to believe it's there. We don't always see what we believe. It's there. There's grace running right through the middle of it, whether you see it now or not. The grace that showers over all of us, a grace that ultimately grabs hold of your heart and refuses to let go, a grace that willingly walks right up onto the cross and then walks right out of the tomb. That's what Mark wants you to know. So when you feel as if things couldn't get worse, when you turn on the news and it looks as if our world is going to hell in a handbasket when that first truth comes screaming at you with all of its fury. Take a note from Mark. Make room in your heart for that second truth. God's incredible, unstoppable, amazing grace Not just good news, but the best news, greater news than you could ever imagine. If you're wondering what the backstory is, grace is it. Don't forget it. Amen.